0: Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to this LSE public event. It's a great honour for me, Paul Dolan from the LSE, to be having a discussion with Lord Gus O'Donnell, um, previously the um, head of the Home Civil Service and the Cabinet Secretary for a very long time, I think, Gus, wasn't it? Uh, at least it felt like a long time. Um, and and now chair of uh, Frontier Economics. Um we're going to have a discussion um, about why policymakers and the public aren't demanding that happiness is taken more seriously. Um, both of us have a very keen interest in the use of measures of well-being to inform policy decisions. Um, and we'd like to make this session as interesting and as engaging as we can. Um, so we're going to have a conversation with one another for about 30 minutes or so. And then we're going to open it up to a Q&A um, for about forty-five minutes. When we when we come to the Q and A, you can upvote the questions. So um, if there's a really especially hard one that you want Gus to answer, um, I'll, I'll obviously take the easy ones. Gus can take the take the hard ones. Then vote them up, and they'll be to the top of the list. Um, and what we also want to do is 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 we want to um, engage you in some polling um, to get a sense of because it's really hard when you're doing these Zoom Zoom um, sessions. We I, I'm very much a big fan of doing live events and it's and it's very hard when you can't see the audience so um what we what we'd like to do is to get you involved in this to some large degree and we're going to have some questions that we're going to ask you very simply just um say whether you agree or disagree with the policy i know that's very 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 simple and crude but um that's 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 how we can do this on uh, zoom so it will it will help frame our conversation for the first half an hour or so we're going to do A couple of questions that are about general policy issues, about why policymakers and the public aren't asking that we take happiness more seriously uh, in appraisals and interventions. Um, And then we're going to have a couple of questions on COVID. Uh, We thought we'd split this roughly half of the time, although it's not going to work out exactly like that, roughly half the time on general policy questions and half the time uh, on issues relating to COVID. So I'm going to actually just get us off Gus if that's all right um, uh, and we'll take the first question see what the see what the audience makes of this um have your fingers on the buttons please oh look there we, there we go the first the first poll is up the first question um, can you yeah just vote basically uh, we're going to keep this poll open for what should we go to should we go to 30 seconds let's uh let's let's have 30 seconds for this first poll and see if we have any um disagreement with the policy that there should be immediate access to mental health services e.g., for Mm. eating disorders Um, and we will stop the poll now so okay Gus this is actually actually (laughs) a really good good place to start so this is a question that that says that we should have immediate access to mental health services uh, for a range of conditions and the example here is an eating disorder we have essentially 97% of those polled about 136 people Mm -hmm. saying that uh, the answer to that question is yes. And they agree with the policy. So the obvious question that I have for you as a starting point is that's what we want overwhelmingly. Why the hell is it that policymakers aren't doing it?
1: Well, um, that's a very good question. It's the first thing to say Uh, pretty overwhelming result. I think number of reasons first of all for a long time there's been stigma about talking about mental health so it's never had the attention uh, that it deserves secondly it is not as visible someone goes into a hospital with a broken leg it's fairly straightforward uh, you go in with mental health disorder you know it's it's less obvious uh, thirdly i'd say mental higher uh, medical hierarchies you know is it um do you see all those programs about you know emergencies and you know consultants and they're all doing fancy operations and all the rest of it? but I think the uh, the profession that deals with medical with the uh, mental health issues is relatively undervalued I mean Richard Lauer has done a lot of work on this and which is why you and I are so passionate about mental health issues because it's, it's absolutely clear that those people who are at the bottom of the well-being ladder, we know the data. Mental health is a massive part of it. And we we have so many people who have got diagnosed mental health diseases that don't get treatment. But I think what's the reason, I think, is that we've never ring-fenced the, the mental health budget. right? We've said, number of Secretaries of State, I'll give you the quotes, we give parity to mental and physical health. It hasn't happened right and until we identify those things it won't happen and until we start saying actually curiously enough the returns from dealing with mental health are much higher than they are from a lot of these physical health conditions and we translate that through the medical hierarchies I don't think we're
0: going to change this situation So. <laughs> Yes yeah, it's interesting you said about giving parity to to mental health, health, so they say that, so they are alert to the fact that the public yeah. may be demanding that to a greater degree now, but you think there's barriers in the professions that stop
1: yeah the reality is it's not happening i mean <clears throat> there aren't the trained personnel that you need <clears throat> excuse me the um <clears throat> you look at provision in in schools it's it's minimal those that do it are doing a brilliant job, but it's is not enough. Uh, and the rest of it, I think, you know, we're, we're all talking about, you know, trying to get people to open up to uh, mental uh, illnesses, to depression. You know, I mean, during this period of COVID, for God's sake, we know that loneliness, we know that mental health conditions will have gone up dramatically. For those with existing mental health issues, it must be even more. Where have you seen anyone talking about mental health issues, you know, on those? press conferences, you know, we are obsessed with COVID deaths, with admissions to hospitals. Let's come to
0: COVID because I think I, mean, I, I want to yep. try and keep, I mean, you know, insofar Sorry. as we can. Because um, yep. I think I think you're right, that that magnifies some of these yep. uh, sure. issues. Um, sure. I wonder whether people, I wonder whether people you say about stigma, it's also, I think, potentially that insofar as the public aren't asking for the same degree of priority to mental health problems as physical ones, is that they kind of imagine their abilities to cope with mental health problems to be easier than they actually are in fact. Uh, yes. I remember when I did my early work on qualities that people imagined having physical functioning problems to be as bad as having mental health problems. And, you know, we know in fact that that's not true in the experience of the conditions, that, that, that there's much quicker and more rapid adaptation to physical functioning problems than there is to mental health problems. And so maybe there's, a, there's still a sense in which, well, you can kind of get over it, can't you? You can sort of pull yourself yeah. together or something. Exactly. I think it's that that public thing it's your
1: fault, right? You're not um you know, you haven't got control of yourself, you know, pull yourself together, all those sorts of things which are amazingly unhelpful to someone who's got depression. Um you know, so I'm just hoping that this this period where people are caring more about each other's well-being and worrying about these things might lead to a long-term structural benefit where we actually think you know what the, there are there are plenty of mental health issues that that you know we should be talking about all the time i suspect another reason is that there are worries you know when someone goes in with a broken leg um you know you put them in plaster and and they'll recover with mental health you know the the recovery rates from all sorts of things are not as obvious uh and are more problematic i think but that's you know we don't give up with cancers or dementia because we don't we don't have a perfect cure for it. Uh, but somehow we translated this into mental health as oh well we can't we can't solve these problems so let's not
0: even try. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You mentioned Richard Layard uh, earlier, and it's in, it's interesting when he was making the case for mental health therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the training of CBT therapists in particular that the that the case was made much stronger when the economic argument was presented. Yeah. Right. So this would this, this ends up saving more money than it costs, and it's kind of yeah. I don't know. It's just an observation that actually that still seems to be quite prominent. If you can make the economic case for the for the for the interventions, then they're more likely to be supported.
1: I, I think that's right, because the you know the argument to spend more and more on health is always there. You know, there's always someone you, you don't get to a point where you say, well, OK, that's enough. You know, th- there's no need to spend any more. It's kind of unlimited the demand, I think and really it's all about prioritization and i think that's where the issue comes in you know we can argue all day about whether the health budget should be bigger or smaller but actually when you think about where the money goes you know the the truth is an enormous amount is spent uh, still in those last few months of life when if you were doing a colleague's calculation or a, a well-being years or whatever you would um you would reallocate away towards particularly mental health issues particularly for younger people
0: I think also just I'm just going to move on to the next to the next question in a second but I just I think it's important also to see that this isn't just a public policy concern it's not a health it's not even a health budget concern that mental health is a challenge for work for, for people in work for employers for employees maybe we need to kind of broaden out the responsibilities I guess for dealing with uh, mental 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 health issues that it's not just rooted through the health budget in the public sector.
1: Totally. And I mean I think it's so true of so many health issues. There's um Nigel Crisp, uh who was the chief exec of NHS uh during my time, mm. has written a book called um Health is Made at Home, Hospital is for Repairs. Not the snappiest title, okay. Mm. You know, you do better on, on titles, I'm yeah. sure. But I the point is I think brilliant in that you know, how, how, what we need to do is spend an enormously amount more of our public spending on prevention, not cure. And preventing people having, uh, problems, uh, is, is so much more important. And if schools could be keeping an eye on mental health of kids and thinking about what are the things that are disturbing their mental health and potential problems, then we might kind of save a lot of, money further down the road because you know mental health problems can lead to problems getting jobs lead you into crime and actually a lot of the work that richard did shows that when you put that combination of physical and mental health things together they are much more expensive to deal with and much more difficult to deal with than one or other on their own
0: okay cool thank you let's move on to that let's move on to the next question because i well i'm not going to preempt what the answers will be let's get the let's get the poll up can we get the second we get our second general policy question up, please. So again, please please do vote. This is made much more enriched by uh, knowing what you think. Um, so we should need, need to move away from the myth of social mobility towards social justice. Um, and let's again see where the audience is going to be on this. We'll go to thirty seconds again. That seems to be quite a good time at which to close the poll got a little bit more disagreement on this one polls close please thank you so okay we've got about four we've got about four fifths of people agreeing with that policy and about uh one fifth of people disagreeing um i I might i might take the liberty of 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 introducing a bit of the context to this question if i might gus and then i'll I'll allow you to um chip in so when we think of so well I just maybe just give a couple of challenges to the mo- to the social mobility narrative um the first of which I guess is that really we're not actually talking about social mobility at all actually we're talking about occupational mobility we're talking about people moving into what we consider to be higher status often better paying jobs uh, and away from those that are deemed to be low status we even call them low skilled jobs um, and that then creates um, an expectation that unless you do achieve the higher occupation, the higher status, the higher paying job, then you're somehow a failure. And that creates this narrative that, you know, sec- that you can if you if you work harder, you can become successful. And, and, and more importantly, if you don't become successful, then that's, a, then that's the result of your lack of effort or talent. But it makes it an individual responsibility issue. Um, and the facts are, in society, of course, we will always need those jobs that are deemed to be low status. We've seen that. I'm trying not to get too much into the COVID discussion, but we've seen that writ large with a lot of the key workers throughout the pandemic. They haven't been the jobs that would typically be associated with, with high status and high pay. And so I wonder, so my, so the sort of context of this question is the idea that we've become obsessed with getting a handful of working class people to become middle class and to become successful we can pat ourselves on the back and say we've done a really good job um, when actually there's something quite systemically wrong with that narrative
1: yeah well i i mean i was surprised by the answers to that question that you got so many uh saying yes to
0: it. the so, well they've yeah, all read yeah. happy happy ever after that's uh what, i know
1: they're, yes. they're kind of you you've brainwashed them already paul um but, but I have to say it's something where we'll come to things we disagree on, but I'm very much with you on this. And I've spent a lot of my time. There are very many worthy people and worthy s- charities and all, this, all going for social mobility. This is brilliant. And it turns out it's like, please can you all be like me? And, and the reason I, you know, I was the youngest child of five, went to state schools, um, went to Warwick University and then, uh, Oxford. But the interesting thing about the universities and the kind of when I was at Oxford, it was absolutely clear their idea of success. There was only one idea of success. And you'll understand this, Paul. Because they were all academics, the only successful thing to be was to be an academic, right? And the idea you might go and work in the civil service was complete failure. Um, because you know, failures did that. So as a result, I ended up going off to be an academic for a while and then realise that there's more to (laughs) life. You (laughs) you can actually influence things more from other places. Um, So I've I've kind of always been somewhat jaundiced by the social mobility, that it's about, you know, I want more people to be like me. I kind of take the view that isn't it brilliant that people have different aspirations and want to do different things in different ways. And there's millions of paths to fulfillment and what i regard as success is people having lives that they personally believe are satisfying and worthwhile and i'd like to say are pro-social so
0: do you um, think do you
1: think we do you think that that's
0: that that it it's got worse in a sense that we've over the last you know few decades because we don't we haven't got very much good data on this of course so we're Speculating and looking, looking at our, looking at the world through our own lenses. But do you think this 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 idea of of success and failure and the narrowness with, in which we define it has become worse or better as time has moved on? Well, if
1: you think of, of what are the big changes, um, you know, big changes in the percentage of people going to universities, um, you know, increased dramatically, and I think that that rhetoric of Here's what you do if you're successful, and and it starts to my mind. And this is a problem I think with the education system. Of you, to be successful, you've got to pass exams. You know, in the old days, it used to be eleven plus, GCSEs, A levels, so you can get to university. And actually, then, curiously enough, quite often, the rhetoric about exams goes away, and it's like you go to university because you'll get a nice job thereafter. And yeah, better if you get uh, a, a good degree, but I mean. Your lot, Paul, have just basically completely got rid of that because, as far as I can see, everybody gets a first or a two-one, and so there's no real differentiator. You've decided not to bother with um, classifying in different ways. So, what do you mean your lot. What's your lot? What
0: are you talking well, about academics?
1: That? You know, Academ- I mean, you know, who else do I blame <laughs> for the fact that the numbers are so dramatic? I'm, I mean, to be honest, I don't really care about them, and I'm really pleased. There's some wonderful LSE research that basically shows not much relationship between degree results and you know and i'm also of the, of the view that since most of these universities are asking for all a's or a stars they're not a differentiator either i mean I'd i'd love universities we could change this social mobility thing if we actually said let's take people in let's not bother about using a levels because i've never seen the evidence that a levels are a good indicator of future success i mean you know i think i mean i think i think, is
0: it, I think is, it, is it is it is it is it Addison wolf or uh, maybe maybe it is um who, who talks mm-hmm. about universities being signaling i mean that's 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 really what yeah. the, that's what yeah, the, the exactly. reason. i mean they're not they're they're just they're to signal something yeah. about your intelligence and capabilities they're not to actually equip you with 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 any of the skills that might be required on particular vocations and occupations
1: yeah um, but how are we getting the signals to decide which people
0: go in by a set of exams. Well, I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you that we've moved the 11 plus up to 18, that's really what we've done is to say that you go to university and you're a success, and if you don't, you're a failure. Um, and as I think, again, we want to try and come on to things that we might disagree on, but we are definitely very much aligned on the affording more status to vocational training, to further education that's not necessarily in a higher education institution. Um but of course yeah. I have to I mean I am at the I have to be careful because I am at the LSE and this is going to go out as an LSC podcast. So um, <laughs> LSE LSC LSC has done LSE has done actually, this is this this is in fact true. LSE has done done better than any other Russell Group uni- university of widening participation um at getting kids from working class backgrounds into higher 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 education and should be commended for that. The important thing then of course is as I think you allude to is that you don't have to then fit in to a particular narrative about how you should live your life or the kinds of jobs that you should go on to. And I think all universities can do much more to take diversity, proper diversity into account as we teach our students.
1: Exactly. And and think about, you know, what, what kinds of uh, jobs will actually result in you having a worthwhile life. You know, I think one of the things I did this thing on wellbeing way back and the, the chart that David Halpern from the behavioral Institute, uh, People Insight team came up with, which was really good, was relating uh, income and job satisfaction, as it were, you know, well-being in in a job, how you felt. And that struck me all of my time in in all the careers advisory services I went through. They were always telling me about, you know, how much you earned in these various things, not whether people actually thought their jobs were worthwhile or not. And, you know, I I did feel for that because it was always hard to get people to choose careers in public service because... You know, curiously enough, the investment bankers were paid five times as much. But believe me, um, I've had, you know, if I had, as as I was uh, tempted to do at one point, go and join Rothschilds or Goldman's, I would have had a lot more money, but I, I would have been uh, a lot less happy, a lot uh, lower well-being. I, I mean, in every respect. So, you know, good luck to the investment bankers. You'll be very
0: rich. Um,
1: but you know, um, there, there, are, there are so many <laughs> are they're the ones
0: that really like. one. dropping off dropping off the participant list. Um, so uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's let's move let's move on to a couple of questions about COVID, uh, and then we'll open it up to Q and A. So can we get can we get our next poll poll up, please? Which is a which is a COVID related question. Um, so again, well, we'll stay open for thirty <laughs> seconds. It'd be in, really interesting again to see what the split across this question is so require that all policies at a minimum are subject to appraisal of expected life years saved this is ah this is now this is now super interesting we've now got literally looking like something very close to a 50 50 split brilliant thank you can you close the poll i mean that's yeah that's um 52 oh, 48 what does that remind you of what what, what vote was that <laughs> with that vote what what yeah, what would that mean? in 2016 um mm-hmm. so uh of course we don't we it, it, you know it's not possible um with the zoom technologies for us to be to, to to explore further why people disagree with that so we won't know what they would have in mind uh when they're disagreeing it but we got we got a we got a 50 50 basically on that um I, I guess the question would be uh well let me ask let me ask you that question Gus. should we should should we require that this is at a minimum are subject to appraisal of expected life years saved.
1: I was, I was intrigued, yeah, by that number. I mean, I wonder what the appraisal of expected life years saved by leaving the EU would have been.
0: Um, tricky to calculate. Well, that depends uh, whether we can get the vaccine out of Belgium or not, doesn't it? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, basically, you know, you do try in government to get all policies subject to as good a cost benefit analysis as you can and um, in some places in some parts of government that's easier than others In the treasury it's pretty straightforward in places like department of transport if you're doing roads investments or trains or all the rest of it you'll get a good standard cost benefit which would have expected life saved in there um, interestingly uh, in health it's much more difficult to get them to kind of do these things they'll do it in little bits Like NICE, a National Institute of Clinical Excellence, has got its qualities and that's, but that's for new drugs. If you said to them, give me the qualities on building this hospital, um, that would be very hard for them. Um, give me the quality, you know, give me the the full analysis of why you've chosen to do more doctors. You know, often politicians come up with what we need is more hospitals or more doctors, you know, very input related. They won't have thought about ultimate outcomes and so well i guess in covid i mean in, yeah. but but but
0: having said that of course in covid they, they have been concerned about the the outcomes which is the number of deaths i mean that's no, clearly a, no no that's well clearly an outcome
1: no they, they'd be they'd be concerned with very specific outcomes and i can explain the politics of that is fundamentally it's been about let's not see the health service overrun we do not want pictures of people on trolleys not being able to get into uh intensive care units um that is the political death so that's been given almost 100% weight uh, and the rest actually i I would love to say the waste has been discounted somewhat but actually we now know from the economic impact statements that have been put out they were never calculated right? right nobody did those sums right um so they weren't actually on, on saying, you know, well, if we close schools, we're going to have these impacts on various things and we're going to, you know, lockdown measures are going to have these effects and COVID is going to mean that we're going to lose lives in non-COVID areas because we transferred resources across to COVID. So um, I, I just, wish yeah. I could say there was a careful calculation, but it's quite apparent that they didn't do it that way. The politics dominated and the politics both of for politicians and for medics.
0: Yeah, no, I just I mean the a reason, reason we asked about life years is because, because that's the would be in one sense one of the most basic considerations that you might think of, right? So when you're when you're messaging people to stay at home to protect the NHS and save lives that there there will be unintended consequences of those particular requirements which means that people who might have a cancer diagnosis uh, would miss it um, and actually we've been doing some work um together with the oncologist showing that it doesn't actually take very long, maybe a, two or three months of people missing a diagnosis or, you know, getting treated at a later stage of cancer for the number of life years lost from cancer alone, just cancer alone, not, 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 not schools, not, not, not anything else, but just from cancer alone for the number of life years lost to probably exceed those, of course, we can never know the counterfactual to probably exceed those that uh, would otherwise have been lost from COVID. But,
1: but Paul let me let me give you a very current policy problem uh where it's quite apparent the expected liberty are not being used um vaccination right we've all seen the pictures on the telly and they're all the 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 government are desperate to be sh- to be showing the 97 year olds and 91 year olds who are having the vaccine first <clears throat> now there's only a limited number of vaccines so question mark why 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 97 year olds and and 80 year olds not getting it instead you
0: know so i yeah. i just a little bit i mean so i i originally uh was a health economist back in the day nearly three decades ago now and i and i worked with alan williams at the university of york and he You're not that old
1: paul come on no can't be just, with that haircut
0: <laughs> oh shut up um <laughs> so uh and, and, and he was a great proponent of the fair innings argument which is the idea that that we're entitled to a a full life of, of health that was measured in quality terms in or just even simply life life years and the 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 less of that you have the more you're cheated um and that's an that's a kind of principle of justice that accounts for the lifetime and not just any one snapshot in time of course, that argument has been criticised heavily for being ageist, um, but there are some isms that are potentially fair. And of course, um, if you, the, thing about, the thing about ageism as uh, distinct from racism or sexism is that we will all be all of the ages that we are until we die. So if you're prioritising, if you're giving greater priority to a, a 40-year-old over an 80-year-old, then that 40-year-old, when they're 80, will get less priority in 40 years' time. And so that's a principle justice of fairness over the l- lifetime. Now, that seems to me to be a very sensible conception of justice. It's actually not just seems to me to be. It's actually what a lot of the public support when we've done lots of studies of uh, various kinds, including, in fact, um, some work that we're doing now during the mm-hmm. pandemic where we're observing the same degree of public preference. And particularly uh, in many instances from 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 older people and sometimes especially from older people so it would it seems to be very interesting why we haven't had a discussion of this at least not 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 necessarily might even do policy in exactly the same way as we've done but but why is that there hasn't been more discussion of not just who's dying but when and and more importantly how prematurely um why do you think why do you think that that hasn't that that hasn't had more airtime
1: well I think that's that's kind of the success, the triumph of politics over virtually everything else. Politicians really don't want you to have that discussion because it it requires them to then be rather more explicit than they'd like to be about trade-offs. And they they basically want everybody to have above-average incomes. They want everyone to get the vaccine. Um and so, you know, the if you get into this, then you face some really difficult choices. Where there's winners and losers, as it were, and they like to be claiming that we're all winners. And now that seems to me that explains the politicians desire, but why the media never ever question this, never come back and say, well, you know, it's interesting about the vaccines. Um surely a, a different way of doing this would be the most vulnerable. Um, and then, and then you could go on to having you know, the, the number of years they would go on for. But <clears throat> I, I, just doing it by age cohort seems to me slightly
0: odd. I have to yeah. I just want to move on to the final question. I just <coughs> want to just kind of be clear about the Fairing's principle, because the, there is a sense that you, you might prefer to, to give priority to younger people because mm-hmm. they have more mm-hmm. going forwards. But the Fairing's argument is, is, is essentially mm-hmm. a retrospective account mm-hmm. of justice, right? So it's, it's what you've already had. Um, and, 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 of course, the fact is that the, the older people have already had more than than people that are younger and actually much more than the often, much more than many of the young people can ever hope to expect. Um, good. Let's move on to that. Let's move on to our final question. I'm conscious of time. We're going to move on to the Q&A very shortly. Let me let me ask you. This is, a, uh, a again, a question relating to um, COVID. Um, and it, it, it's sort of prompted <clears throat> by the uh, it, it, the fact that I think pretty pretty much most governments is clearly not just the UK government has um, <clears throat> focused on national lockdowns or local lockdowns that affect entire populations. As this thing from okay, we close the poll. Thank you. Oh, this is brilliant. Again, this is a fifty. This is even closer, fifty-fifty split. Wow. Um, rather than rather than. Um, Taking seriously the prospect of shielding policies, essentially, where where those most at risk from the virus would be treated differently and separately from those least at risk, and those least at risk are predominantly younger younger people who could continue to go about their daily business if you like, insofa- if if it were only possible for us to keep keep them away from people who were at greater risk from the virus, and that those policies haven't been pursued anywhere I don't think have they um again we've got we've got a 50-50 split down the middle on this one do you want to make some observations or comments on this question and the responses from the polling
1: yeah I mean this is intriguing I don't know uh, Andrew Oswald put forward this idea very yeah, very, he did. Early very, on. very 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 early on yeah and um you know I, I remember talking to him about it uh again it was it was quite apparent to me this would be very very hard and I said this to him at the time, to get politicians to go with this. They they really don't like making these age divides. And question mark, is that to do with the voting propensities? You know, we know that older people are much more likely to vote. Um, if you ever try and take away any of their benefits, I know this, because I've been in that position with TV licenses for over 75s, free TV licenses for over
0: 75s. Um, and advising on that you, you, you don't want to into... say something about the winter fuel allowance i know i know how much you oh. i know how much you love that do you want to <laughs>
1: <laughs> we just have these policies that, that take away take away from the poor and give to the rich and it's kind of like really you know kind of reverse robin hood do we really want to give winter fuel allowances to millionaires who've retired to live in italy um i mean you know ah it just gets me going, I'm afraid. Yeah. It does every so, time, I know. <laughs> every time you've wind me up successfully on that. And and of course, once you put any of these policies in place, you know, as we know, loss aversion means that taking them away is incredibly hard. Um in in London they've they've taken away the right of uh, certain older people <laughs> to travel free during the rush hour. Um you know, why did they have it in the first place? Um but that that'll be controversial, and they're already campaigning to bring it all back. So I think that the issue really with this is um, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the view that you can't trust the younger people to actually behave responsibly and keep away from, because they may well, you know, if they're all going back to work, uh, a lot of them may well get the disease. They may well be asymptomatic, so they won't know they've got it. Yeah. In the absence of a good testing
0: but do, do you get program? this when evidence might not come in so you know the uh, you, you mentioned andrew um Oswald, and i think hasn't he got hasn't he shown recently about is it 92 percent of people of workers under 40 don't live in molds don't don't have anyone in the household over 65 yeah um, and and you'll you,
1: see the misuse of statistics all over the place from other people about you know saying oh and and they've you know they found ways to partially get some numbers that are not as high as that, but yeah, basically people don't live with, uh, most people don't live with older people. So, you know, you have, it's relatively easy to, um, uh, to to keep the two apart if, if there's a desire on both sides to do it. And of course there are distributional issues that certain particular groups uh, culturally uh, live together more. So you would be, as it were, disadvantaging disadvantage those groups.
0: Yeah. I'm going to move on to some general questions in a second, second that people are coming. I just wanted to make just one quick observation on the <laughs> policy responses to COVID is that at a minimum, wouldn't it have been important? You wouldn't have thought it would be sensible to, to, to ask older people what they would like <laughs> to see done. Yes. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't see that there's any sense in which there's been <laughs> any consideration of what people in there eighties and nineties would actually like the policy responses to COVID to be. And that seems a very odd, uh, an odd thing.
1: I agree with that. And there's, there's almost this feeling that, um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's paternalism. You know, we know what's best for them. They'll put themselves at risk and, and they'll die and we'll be blamed. So let's not allow them the freedom to make those choices. And, uh, now to, to the extent that some people are completely incapable of making those choices, maybe for medical reasons, yeah. Then you can understand that. But otherwise I, I think you're absolutely right. I trust the people, is my view, a lot of times. And that seems
0: to be a way of getting uh, good compliance in many ways. Yeah, good. Thank you. All right, let's move on. So we've got some questions coming in now. I'm gonna um they've been um kindly uh put to me in the in the chat function. So I'm gonna I've got a I've got a question about uh, I need to scroll back up. There's lots of questions coming. So <laughs> Gonna start, I've got a question here, it's about um no. about uh, New Zealand and their mm-hmm. wellbeing budget. Jacinda Arden's uh wellbeing budget. Um the question specifically is could Gus and Paul comment on on it and its viability? You wanna say something about the wellbeing budget?
1: Sure. Um <clears throat> I, I love the New Zealand Prime Minister, mainly because she she spent some time as a civil servant in the British Cabinet office. Oh. <clears throat> so She's a complete star. She must be um, good then. Brilliantly yeah. trained.
0: Good. Yeah. Huh? I say she actually, must be good then.
1: Yeah, exactly. I didn't actually come across her, unfortunately. But I mean, I think she's a star. Let's get that clear. Um, And I think the well-being budget is is um, certainly a step in the right direction. I mean, the problem is um, the reality of it as to whether they're actually making decisions based on it. And you know, there are four different vers- parts of it. Uh, there are all these columns. The reality, if you're in uh, government, is how do you do the trade-offs between them? Um, how do you kind of – some of them are uh, <clears throat> put in terms of capital. Some of them are in terms of flows. So it's not an ideal operational setup, to be perfectly honest. But <clears throat> I think that's quibbling. I think the fact that they're having the conversation about well-being, the fact that they talk to people about what really matters to them, the fact that this budget is out there, and if you, I wrote a thing in the Financial Times recently, and I was saying that, you know, countries are now starting to talk about this, and it's news from New Zealand to Iceland, and quite yeah. a lot in between was the way I put it. And Scotland's doing it. You know, a lot of other countries are getting there, and they may not do it perfectly, and they may not do it quite the way I'd like them to it to do it, but it is moving the right way, and it's moving us away from this complete obsession with GDP, which as any good economist knows, is a good measure of activity, one we would like to keep,
0: but it's not a success measure. Yeah, well, actually, I'll I'll, I'll maybe make some um, comments Mm. towards the end. But just we've got another question. This actually Mm. kind of segues into something that's also popped up as a question about Mark Carney, um, you know, talking about the move away from using GDP and financial value towards more human values. Um, do Do you have any sense in which this is a turning point or is this just another... Example of you know someone saying something and no one paying attention.
1: I spent a couple of hours with mark uh, yesterday uh, virtually of course Um, uh, uh, We were talking about uh, plans to uh, operationalize the net zero idea Mm -hmm. and to have people put their uh, Money into investments which actually help all sorts of companies move towards net zero and have plans to move into net zero so I'm a big fan of, of Marx, and yeah, the is going on at the minute about uh, value. I would definitely say we are moving that way. Um, the whole bit about the environment, I think, is good. <clears throat> if you look at companies, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at companies, the whole ESG uh, agenda is is big, but the S part isn't really being picked up at the minute. The E part is good; that's climate change. The S about social, about the well-being of your uh, customers, the well being of your staff, you know, that I think is the next big thing that we need to get going. So uh, I think uh, Mark is pushing us in the way of actually dealing with what's quite a tricky well being issue because I think some work that's been done by um, Yandaniv and, Eve and uh, Jeff Sachs about <clears throat> when you look at the uh, SDGs, sustainable development goals. And one of them is about well-being. And if you relate the others to that well-being goal as the ultimate goal, Mm. then you find that there are lots of things like um, the climate change stuff, which would require you to put prices, say, of of energy up, that that, that what people think of as damaging their well-being in the short term, but actually create better long-term outcomes. So there are, I think, lots of policies where we would have to accept the fact that they may well reduce well-being in the short run, but increase it over the long term. So it's about sustainable well-being. I think it's really
0: important. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to. I've got a question. I'm going to make a comment on this because I've got a question coming in about can we measure quality <laughs> of life, and that'll give you opportunity to have some water. Um, can we measure quality? Can we measure quality of life, not life life expectancy? And, and of course, absolutely yes. Uh, but what I was going to say in relation to this is that it's interesting, isn't it that for economists, you know, if you look at a utility function in a standard economics textbook, it says utility is a function of why income? Um, and maybe if they're getting a bit wild and wacky, they might put relative income in. Um, but it's it, it, even an economist appreciates that it's not income that's important for well-being. It's what income allows you to do. And, of course, you can, with more money, satisfy more of your preferences. And on the health side, it's it has been predicated almost entirely on increasing life expectancy that the that, that health is measured measures only in the mortality risks uh, really and we've seen this writ large during covid and sort of well-being gets lot like the, the important consequences of both having money and life is to be able to enjoy it in some whatever sense we'd have to call it happiness well but to have, but to live a life that's that's rich fulfilling you know contains pleasure and purpose in the language that i would use um, and that seems to fall. Why is it that that falls? It sort of comes bring maybe to the, to the main theme of what we're discussing: that this sort of falls between the cracks. You know, the idea that that you would want a life that's 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 high in pleasure and purpose is almost like a luxury good. What you ought to be doing is having as much money as possible, living as long as possible, um, and any trade-offs that you might make for for money and life expectancy are kind of crazy because they're seen as crazy from an economist's perspective, mm-hmm. or they're seen as crazy from a health. Uh, cap, uh, yeah,
1: I think <clears throat>
0: we, we got a lot of
1: attention on this when life expectancy numbers, which have been going up forever, started to plateau. And <clears throat> I think you get this differential between high-income people, where life expectancy keeps going up, and lower-income people, where it's coming down. And um, that meant that people then go one step back and they look at healthy life expectancy, which is obviously a, a, a much better measure. Which is how long have you had in good health and I think that whole business that you've been talking about, qualities and well-being years, uh, gives you the right answers and what we should be concentrating on. Uh, I mean, just keeping people alive at a really great expense in not very comfortable circumstances for another few months. I mean, and that's costing huge amounts of money. That clearly versus being able to spend that money on some preventative policies, which actually – Give big increases in healthy life expectancy. Um, it's it's just a no brainer, and I think we need to kind of really work hard at getting that across that it's it is about quality. And um, I mean, I don't really th- this thing about income, which which you talk about a lot, Paul, as well. I <clears throat> you know, having left the civil service, I now get paid more than I ever did as a civil servant. And to be honest, it's quite hard to spend a lot of money. I mean, um, and I don't quite see what you get for it. You know, I, I, the things I'd want to buy, I can't buy. I, I would like to see Manchester United just make the most of the talent they've got, for example. I'd like to see, you know, lots of things happen, which it, it just money doesn't buy. And And I think... At the low level, of course, it's massively important and it makes a massive difference. But, you know, for those people who've got the first billion, what does the second billion do for them? I, I just genuinely don't get it. You cannot <laughs> consume it, it's not possible.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, you've, the thing is that it becomes addictive, isn't it? It's like any addictive good. And, and it is true, you know, it is true that. And we, you can't emphasise this enough, I don't think, that poverty mm. makes people miserable. No. That, you know, if you're Absolutely. paying attention Absolutely. to how you're going to pay, how yeah. you're going to... So it does... I do get a little bit... I feel sometimes it's a little uneasy when happiness economists talk about money doesn't make people happy. Well, that's easy to say when you've got it. Um, yeah, but exactly. actually, you know, poverty does make people miserable mm. uh, when you're paying attention, to feeding the kids, paying the bills. You know, that, that that does induce considerable degrees of anxiety. And so we should be alleviating poverty. People People themselves... Makes sense for them to be motivated to to earn more money the problem is that we don't know when to stop do we we kind of become addicted to the narrative and then we just accumulate 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 and i don't know if these if we've got any good suggestions and recommendations about how we kind of get ourselves off that treadmill to move away from what i I talk about in happy ever after from more pleased to just enough um i don't know if you've got any reflections um, on that
1: yeah, when 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 you talk about people who are seriously rich, so uh, I do happen to know a number of Goldman partners, and their bonuses were uh, pretty obscene in my view. They, for them, it was a success measure, so it really mattered, right? And and if X got a bigger bonus than them, that was really important to them, and it really affected their self esteem, and it really affected their well being. So I understand that, but it wasn't the income that did it. So trying to find ways. Which can solve those problems, which don't necessarily require very large differences in pay. You know, in the civil service, we had the one of the most elaborate job appraisal uh, um, systems I've ever had, and in the end, you might get a box one rather than a box two, and you'd get about two and six more. You know, you get about <laughs> five pounds. It, it was just the money was, in relative terms, just completely trivial, but the. You know, it mattered in terms of uh, standing and esteem. So I think there's that. And the other part, I'm doing this thing with Andy in this commission on uh, civil society. Mm. One of the big differences between us and, say, the United States is how little is given in philanthropy, you know, that rich people on average in the UK don't give anything like as much to charity. Now, partly that's some tax reasons, but I kind of – wish and i hope that covid has generated this this understanding that actually volunteering helping uh other people not only helps them but really gives you a buzz you know i mean uh, yeah. the stuff i do for pro bono economics makes me feel really good i don't know if it does any good to anybody else but i mean <laughs> i like it uh, and it improves my well-being so you know why yeah. not i mean
0: I, doing I, more do you mention that you know i i've i've had a lot to say in various places about this about tapping into the the, to the selfishness of selflessness that actually you do and there's very good you know rcts and good good um evidence causal evidence showing that in the case of volunteering for example when you draw attention to the personal benefits that come from it you get more of it and people do it for longer Hmm. we've kind of created this narrative about you know sort of pro-sociality almost has to be self-flagellating it's it's a we kind of create this higher this hierarchy of intentions and motivations, which I think distracts us from doing the most good um, yeah. we make it transparent we make it visible we celebrate it and we get more of it um, yeah
1: and I think to be honest we, we need to kind of find ways to generate a society in which uh, people can do things which you know are oh, okay oh, now I've got to do something terrible I've got to do some voluntary work or community sport or whatever yeah but but we do things that people really really enjoy and you know i uh you know that's i think where we're we're failing we're not creating really enjoyable opportunities for people to actually do things which um actually make the world a better place you know so okay. how do we do that that's a really interesting question i think in the charitable sphere a lot of it, it used to be you know when uh i remember in the civil service they said to me um go do some volunteering and i did some volunteering playing with playing football with some new uh migrants and some people who have various issues i really enjoyed it i don't know if they cared one way or the other but it did strike me that uh that it it fulfilled part of what one should do i.e there was enjoyment in it the other part though that it wasn't a very efficient way of doing it so i mean that was what led to pro bono economics we thought well if you're economist's Actually, you really enjoy doing economics, and presumably you really understand about marginal utility and really understand about helping people who are very poorly off. So, getting economists to come and volunteer to help charities establish mm-hmm. their impact and be more effective—you know, what what a brilliant win-win! You can then coming out of the canal or painting a room. You're using your
0: skills, and I think that's where we need to think about it. OK, let's um, let's 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 ask. I've got a question that uh, has come to the top of the list, it seems, around um, sexism uh, in policy. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically on, on on whether we believe a disregard of mental health and happiness uh, intersects with sexism in any way. Um, for example, depression, anxiety, eating disorders have higher incidence amongst women uh, and begs the question whether there are underlying biases uh, in that regard.
1: Oh, um, good question. I mean, and I thought do i give the
0: tough one.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, you said you would and you, you <laughs> have um, kept your word. Um, if you look at our politics, you know, we are the, it, it is, it isn't gender neutral. You know, the, we, we are dominated by, if you look at the cabinet, yeah, dominated by men. Um, there are all sorts of issues. Um, civil service try try very hard uh, civil service is actually more female than male but as you go up the ranks that diminishes although the senior civil service is getting there i'm pleased to say um so I, i'm sure there's some sexism i'm sure following that uh lovely book about invisible woman yeah. women uh there's lots of uh biases that are in there either consciously or unconsciously so it wouldn't surprise me and when you look at the COVID uh, effects. You know, there is a there is a massive uh, gender imbalance in what's been done in terms of lockdown measures and the impact they've had on women rather than men. So there's a gender imbalance. Uh, it's hurt the poor more. It's hurt women more, and it's hurt young more. Uh, the lockdown measures. And um, you know, I, I I do genuinely think we we need to work very hard at this. Uh, I was speaking to this morning, God, I'm name dropping today, uh, Julie Gillard, uh, the former Australian mm. prime minister, and she's working hard on this to try and think about how you get rid of some of these biases in all sorts of different aspects of life, but particularly in governments. But, but it's, it's undoubtedly true at the minute. I think that we underplay the gender aspects of policies. And as a result, we, we don't, uh, you know there is there is implicit sexism in there definitely.
0: Yeah, I think you actually mentioned, you mentioned the Invisible Women by Caroline Credo Perez. I would recommend that book to everybody. It's a really, a really compelling read uh, about how we've had a blind spot to women in public policy. Yeah. Um I mean, I you know overlaid with that of course because many of these things uh, related to intersectionality mm-hmm. is the issue of class and poverty. You mentioned that yeah. significantly, um, and again, you know the the people making the decisions uh, in relation to COVID or anything else come from a particular population subgroup. And we, we talk about diversity. It's made, you know, it's, we talked about age earlier. We, we, we should certainly have more diversity of age. It'd be really interesting to see if policy in COVID have been made by 80 year olds rather than, than mostly men in their fifties. So there's a whole range of other um, characteristics I think that are important when we're considering policy making and the impacts of those policies on populations. I'm going to look a question about work now. I've got a question coming, um, which is about um, considering the amount of time we all spend at work. How, um, how can the private sector be encouraged to take a better lead uh, in looking after the well-being um, of employees?
1: Right. Well, I mean, this is this is a massive thing because we know uh, a we spend a lot of time at work, um, and b work is really important to us in terms of well-being. Um, you know, not having a job is you know up there as one of the biggest uh, problems for uh, uh, your well wellbeing um, and then having a bad job where you don't feel in control, all those sorts of things. And these are all adjusting, you know, allowing for income uh, and all the other factors. You still get these effects coming through. So good work is massively important. Um, and also uh, we actually know, and this is where I can pass it back to the economist maybe uh, in Paul, um, that uh, people who have higher wellbeing uh, have higher productivity. I mean, there's causation issues there, but I think some great work by Anne and Eve looking at call centres um, has shown that uh, there's an independent effect, and that actually, uh, if people are feeling better, they actually are more productive, and it and the causation goes that way, uh, as well as going the other way. But it's but there's a very strong uh, work that way. So I think work is really important. I think the key to getting this more generally. Is that that uh, movement that's that started and getting quite big, big in the U.S., big in Canada, about businesses thinking about purpose, and it's, so it's not just the cold uh, Friedmanite: uh, the job is to maximize profits for shareholders. Actually, businesses have a purpose; they have more stakeholders, and so caring about the well-being of their staff is massively important. Now, the question you then have to get for The Economist, and this is where I'm going to hand the difficult one back to uh, Paul, is if it is true that people with higher well-being have higher productivity uh, and those companies do better, uh, so how come the market doesn't sort that out and companies that don't look after uh, workers that way uh, just uh, aren't profitable and cease to exist?
0: So why doesn't the market sort of this, Paul? You're asking me? Okay. Good. Yeah. Well, I'll just say a couple of things. I I, I just I, I will I will answer that question. I never avoid a question um the 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 interventions though in the workplace are really interesting and i think this is for me where the importance of pleasure and purpose becomes even more important is that when when companies intervene in ways to create fun or pleasure in the in in the workplace they often backfire because workers quickly see that this is a cynical attempt to increase productivity um but when they're purpose-driven um when they're actually making people appreciate or you appreciate the work that people are doing by you know, very well-timed and sincere and authentic thank yous and appreciation of the efforts that people are putting in, they are much more galvanising because no one at work wants to feel like they're wasting their time. And I think that's really significant is, is where purpose comes in. But I think it's interesting about the market failures, though, because it, it does, you know, someone who's sort of morphed more into a psychologist over the last decade or two, um, the, the, the way that economists and psychologists approach work or how they view work, is, is actually quite different, isn't it? That an economist sees it as a bad that requires compensation. It's basically a cost. No one wants to be at work, right? So so Keynes, you know, you know Keynes spoke you know, about how when we were going to get the returns mm. from growth would lead us to work in two-day weeks, right? We will be working two-day weeks now mm. um, because we want leisure time. So work, it doesn't – in that sense, there's no reason why companies should care about well-being because it's a cost. And so all they need to do is pay you enough. To, to make it worth your while to go in. Um, psychologists, on the other hand, spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, occupational psychology and work and health and work and how you can make more work, work more purposeful and meaningful. Um, and so maybe it's the, the psychologists, have in, in general, had much less impact on policy than economists have. Um, that,
1: that's undoubtedly true. And I think one of the, um, one of the biases in the policy system is that, uh, and I, I've always described this uh, coming as an economics economist myself, uh, that the economists are like Japanese knotweed. You know, we'll go everywhere. we all kind of look at any policy. We'll give you a cost benefit. We'll, we'll do some analysis of it. Um, but you get, you know, psychologists, anthropologists, others, you know, that those skills aren't there. And actually, we miss out on that. Uh, so I think that's certainly true. Can I put in a, a word of defense for fun? I mean, you know, I chair Frontier Economics. Our values start with the word fun because actually if if work itself is fun, that's the whole point of it. You don't have to add it on and say you've done all this terrible stuff. Now you can have your 10 minutes of fun. Actually, you have to say, God, why are you doing this terrible stuff? You know, like, why did we take on this contract? Um, Let's let's do – let's not do that work ever again. Let's do – because it's really uninteresting and it's boring. Let's do the fun bit and – uh the bit that's interesting and, and you know uses new techniques and creates new insights and uh, is fun i mean i think that's where you have to get to in work and hopefully things like artificial intelligence i know they can do this for um you know uh, i was uh, on the board of uh, pwc for accountants you know more and more of the stuff that they're doing in audit will be done in future by artificial intelligence and by programs and and to be honest, it's a lot of the stuff that creates, that requires you to go through journals and all those, a lot of the really boring stuff. So I hope that technology can actually add some fun, because a lot of the boring, repetitive stuff is done by machines.
0: Yeah. So there was a question. I've been trying to, uh, engage, I, this is an incredibly difficult challenge in, in multitasking, which of course we know that the brain is incapable of doing. Um, there was a question that I saw. Sorry, you're the wrong gender. I'm the wrong gender. Yeah, I know. Sadly, uh, the evidence is that women can't multitask any better than men can, which <laughs> is like neither either of us can at all. all. Right? The brain, the brain, the brain single task very quickly. That's basically what what what, what, we, what we think happens. But um, there was a, there was a question in relation to to, to uh, AI. I'm not going to. I can't. I can't draw back the question. But about how um, you know the sort of uh, advances in technology are, are hollowing out um occupations and jobs and we're going to have this very polarized set of professions with you know elites at the top and 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 poor people at the bottom and all wow. the middle kind of disappear um and i think uh i think that's something that grace lorden at the lse i think has been um looking at too i don't want to be misquoting uh, this evidence but it seems that those middle band of jobs are the ones that are going to disappear with te- with, with uh, yeah. technology you've got any comments on what that means for, yeah. the, for mean, the wellbeing agenda think- or for the world generally
1: yeah, there is this amazing bias that when um, you know when technology is taking away kind of manual jobs and all the rest of it, we all say, "Oh, that's brilliant!" Yeah, for <laughs> all those poor people who had those jobs. Now yeah. it's kind of um, coming into middle income. Kind of, you know, my son was you know working at PwC or whatever, Deloitte, and their job's going to be taken up. Oh, this is absolutely terrible! You know, um, come <laughs> on, I think I yeah. think we need to be balanced about this. I think. The kinds of things that AI is very bad at, and, you know, talking to people at Deep Minds and the like, are the, some of the creative stuff, some of the personal stuff, you know, you are not going to get um, personal training. So, I mean, yeah, sure, you can have apps and all the rest of it, but there are those things where the essence of the product that's being delivered is the human interaction. And I think you're going to find that there's this, growth in demand for personal interaction for creativity for things that by their nature um computers at least at the moment aren't so good at and so and and away from jobs which are essentially quite repetitive um mm. be they repetitive in a slightly higher skill level but i i personally regard this as very positive and that it will allow us humans to concentrate on the things which are essentially important to us as humans and a well-being
0: agenda would very strongly back that up. Yeah. It reminds me of, so what are your views on UBI? On universal basic income? Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Yeah. Um,
1: Because basically I think people really care about work. There's status to work. There's, uh, you know, and, and the idea of work, as you say, it's, it's kind of the economist's idea of work as a cost, I think is again wrong. Uh, when I go into work, I interact with, well, in the old days, I would interact with people personally that I would enjoy interacting with. I'd have conversations I hadn't even thought about. Um, uh, yeah. And, uh, these were all things I liked. These were things that brought me pleasure. Um, the idea of, uh, not being able to, uh, do this and sit the rest of my life staring at screens fills me with horror, to be perfectly honest. So, uh, and UBI that said just stay at home we'll give you income because all that matters is income i think uh, wouldn't do it again have to be incredibly careful about if you're out of work uh, and in poverty you know income is absolutely massively important
0: yeah and it does i mean it speaks directly to the purpose of people's lives and experiences is why unemployment is so scarring um you know uh, uh, and, and and it stays um, scarring even when you're back in work right because you've got the fear the fear of the job your, yeah. of losing your job again um yeah. i want to um maybe we should br- bring things back i'd like to, i'd like to mo- move on to maybe where we think things might be going in a in a in a post covid world i mean we had we had the first vaccines yesterday that we discussed a bit earlier um where where we think we're going and how well-being might might play into um, some of that. You mentioned you mentioned the loneliness issue earlier, whether that's gonna manifest itself. I don't wanna be uh misquoting my colleague Liam Delaney, but we we've been thinking about how, you know, some of some of those effects will quickly rebound. Um uh but other others might be a bit stickier. And so having sort of glib overall statements about how the world has got better or worse in some regard is probably a disservice to, to 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 how things will pan out. Of course there's going to be a lot of heterogeneity across across people and over time. I wonder if you've got any reflections on sure. on any of what I've just said as a streaming concept. Mm. <laughs> um
1: well it's been a mass experiment where we've required people to change their behavior incredibly radically. I mean if I look back on this and I think, you know, someone had put to me, well we're going to have to close pubs on a Sunday. I would have said, well, you know, people are right. You can't do that. To close pubs Forever, as it were, and close all shops i mean these are these are amazing things we 've done, and as a result, people have had very, very different experiences and I think as a result of that they 'll have learned things that they really love and things they really hate and I expect that some of those will last, for example, I think a lot of people have realized that they really, really dislike communi- commuting, and the idea of getting back on the Northern line and squeezing in uh, to the train at, you know, half past seven, I mean, fills me with complete dread. I'm not going to do that. I have made up my mind. That's just never going to happen. So I I think there'll be a lot of people who say, you know what, I think I can manage my work uh, experience in different ways. Yes, I want to go to the office. But actually, I feel better now about a more flexible time. So it might be three days a week rather than five, not commuting. Uh, it's going to be nice. I like that idea. I like the idea of spending more time with my family. I like the idea of being there at bath time, at, you know, reading to my kids at night. You know, there'll be all sorts of things that I think people have realized that they just drifted into this mode of working. And I think on the other side employers will begin to realize actually we thought if they all work from home they wouldn't do anything they would watch telly all day and they don't um and so i think there's been learning both ways and we've also learned things like things that really matter to us may not be things that relate associated with income that you know hugs being able to meet people um you know those, those kinds of things which don't show up in gdp anywhere uh are massively important and social interactions, relationships, these things, hugely important. And I think we'll we'll learn and hopefully come out of this massive experiment with some changes in values, which might be permanent. And I suspect that, you know, I, I absolutely don't believe in the end of the office. I think that's completely rubbish. I think that, that you will get uh, a move where, there is more flexibility about when people are in offices, and when they do go into offices, I think they use the time much more to do the things that you can only do in intero- in offices, which is personal interaction, creativity, you know, sessions where you want to bounce ideas off. Yeah, uh, and and the things that we know you do on Zoom, like the board meetings I've had and stuff like that, be very transactional, and that, which is fine, but it's not easy to get. You know, that personal creativity, all of those gains from being in the same place when you're just staring at a picture, no no matter how beautiful that picture is, Paul.
0: Yes. Well, I I mean, I tend to I I don't know. I'm a very optimistic uh, vision. Generally, I I think I'm probably more optimistic than I am pessimistic about most things in life. But I do have moments where I worry considerably about the long term damage that's been done, particularly to young people through our policy responses and I particularly in schools I mean the yeah. closing of schools and those yeah. tens of thousands of children that have gone missing that will never return whose lives are not going to turn out very well um, and, and 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 how the, you know there the didn't appear to be a recognition of that in the early stages of the pandemic and um it took a long time for people to catch up about the importance of that I'd like to think that as we move forward and plan for Future crises, whether they be economic, financial, or social, or health, that we that we are better prepared um, to fully consider the impacts that we're having across the populations.
1: Yes, I, I agree, and I think the whole frameworks for analysing these things was terrible. You know, I don't think they made the decision on schools with with anyone saying to them, "Do you realise what the long term consequences of this would be?" I am on, on the other hand, so I am more of an optimist than you Paul it turns
0: out wow is that wow okay I, good. glad you think I'd that.
1: be interested to know the adaptation so the people that fell behind a bit so they, they possibly didn't cover the Tudors in their history course in the same way they might have done is that really going to make a huge big difference um uh, no now, I agree
0: no I agree with you about that but I'm talking about the kids where school is the place that they get comfort security care and food yeah um yeah. not not the ones that have missed out a little bit on their education and you know that doesn't really matter so no. much in the substantive sense I'm talking about the ones that really you know where home is not a safe you know when it said stay at home that message yes. for, for many of us would be a nice warm place with central heating um yeah. for 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 lots of people that isn't the that isn't the case but I don't want to end on a two negative I want to let's try let's actually let's go to education the final question and then we're going to have to wrap up in a couple of minutes um this is about um, whether we should be and to what degree we should be educating people uh, about well-being um, in schools. Totally. I mean, I, I
1: would go further than that. I would actually say um, let's not spend quite so much time examining mm-hmm. kids uh, and let's um, basically you know, find out more about their well-being. Uh, our well-being scores, uh, they do this. PISA does it. Mm. uh for kids are abysmal we are we are so far down the international league tables on this it's just untrue um and it really shocked me so yeah we need to spend more time i think on uh looking after their well-being and and have as the goal of schools that they should improve the well-being of their kids and it turns out if if kids with high well-being get better at exams and have more satisfying lives later so this to me is the fundamental and it's what it should be about. And as a parent and as a teacher, that's what I want to be doing, as opposed to how many, what percentage did you get that got A uh, to C grades uh, GCSEs? You know, there's more to life than that.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Well, what, what a fantastic place to finish. There's more to life than that. Um, I hope that people have enjoyed uh, this session. I know, I know I have the time has flown very quickly. Um, I think I'm getting the... Oh, that we're all going to start disappearing in a second. Um, thank you very, very much, Gus. That was an absolute pleasure and awesome. purpose. And thank you, everybody, for your questions and for polling. Um, I think the podcast of this event will be available sometime shortly thereafter. Um, and uh, thank you all again very much. And goodbye. Thanks a lot, Paul. All the best. Thank you, Gus.